pray. God, we thank you for the privilege that we had today already to be singing these songs to you, to come to you in song and praise, to thank you for who you are, what you've done, what you're doing, and what you're yet going to do in our life and our world and our future. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your love. We ask that you'd help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And at this time, many of the children, if we need to go this way, you can come on down. As I say, come on down. There they go. Come on down. What a group. That's great. All right, it doesn't hurt to pray one more time. Lord, we are grateful for these children. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news of the scripture. And we pray for us, Lord, today as we come to this passage, this beautiful, challenging, wonderful passage, that, Father, we would have our, our, our eyes open, our hearts open to hear what you have for us, that we might be able to serve you well. We thank you for your goodness. We ask that you be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage that we're looking at at Psalm 51 today is one of the ones that's well known among a lot of Christians. It goes way, way back, obviously, to the time in the Old Testament. But yet it's an amazing passage that many people have turned to at many, many times. And the message title I gave it was, Have Mercy Me, O God, and took that right from the passage that we have that we're going to be looking at in just a minute. But what's interesting about this psalm, well, I should say one of the many things about this psalm, is that it has a very interesting superscription in the top. In other words, we've seen a lot of psalms where it says, A Psalm of Asaph, or A Psalm of David, or A Psalm of This. What's different here is that there's a psalm, all right, but it's got a much longer area right above it where it talks about a situation that happened that was critical in the time of David and a situation that brought great shame to a great king that had devastating consequences for him and his family. Our passage, you can see right up on here, you can see it on here, it says this way, for the director of music, a psalm of David. That part right there, it's like we've heard that a lot of times. It's this next section where it gets a little interesting. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. I find that very interesting in the sense where a lot of times when people have made something wrong, they've done something really bad, and most people don't want to go around and say, hey, did you know how terrible I am? Did you know how bad I just worked, did something? In other words, it's saying, he says, okay, let's, let's spill all the dirty dirt out of here. He said, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and most of us all know the story. We know the fact that David had defeated all the people around him, all the ites people, this ites, that ites, and that ites. He'd taken them all. He was the great king. He was the great one that God was using in a remarkable way. He had everything a man could want. He had a wife and a whole bunch more and concubines. And in other words, this guy had it all. He had all of it going to him except for one thing. He was out there up on his roof, and he looked over, and here was a young woman who was bathing. Now remember, he not only had a wife, he had other wives and concubines. 
But he looked at her, and he had lust again with her, and wanted to have a relationship with her. And of course, you know what happened is he realized he really just couldn't say, well, you know, come do this. He couldn't do that. So he said, well, send this guy, her husband, out to fight with, for my people. And maybe he'll get killed out there. And that didn't work too well. So they tried another thing, and that didn't work too well either. And then it turned out that he did get the woman. And he took her as to be one of his lovers, so to speak. And after that, God looks down on it and says, you know, after all that I've done for you, after all that I've given you, I've held nothing back from you. And here is this woman whom we just did something to have this man be killed so, David, you could take him, to be, take her to be your wife. What's amazing about the Bible is it puts a story like that in such an important part of the Bible. It reminds us again that all of us at our best are still sinners. I am a sinner. You are a sinner. Everybody in this room is a sinner. It all is just a question of degree. But the reality is, sin is a reality in us. And of course, you know what happened with the story. God sends a prophet named Nathan. And he comes to David and tells him in lovely little story, there was this little man and all he had was this beautiful lamb, but he had some guests coming over. So the rich man said, hey, well, go take that poor man's you know, animal and go ahead and kill it and you know, get it all set up. And we're going to have a nice meal with it. And God's one that speaks up and says, really? He tells the little story to David. David, isn't that terrible that somebody would do something like that? And it's right then that Nathan goes, David, you're the man. I just told you a little story that you would understand what's going on here. I gave you everything you ever wanted. I made you the king of the kings. And here's what you've done. And you know what, David? It's going to cost you. There's going to be issues. As you know, the child that was born from that group, from that woman, died. And it was not just that. The issues that followed from them, from the following kings, sons, grandsons, great sons. Some were good, some were awful. But it was never quite the same. And it would have been absolutely right in God's eyes to look upon David, the king, and say, you know what? You're the leader of all this. You're the one that ought to be taking the reins in terms of doing what is right in God's eyes, and you haven't do it, and I'm taking you out. And instead, he says, I can do that, but I'm not going to do that, but there'll be consequences. And so what's interesting in this psalm, it starts off from the very beginning dealing with the issue of failure, sin, and reconciliation. So look at this passage with me as we go through this passage right here. And it starts off in such a beautiful way. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Now, again, we don't know if David wrote this. Someone helped David write it. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. The point is it's a beautiful psalm. Have mercy on me, on God. You could hear my David saying to God, have mercy on me, O God. I, I had, it was a whopper of a sin. It was an awful thing that I did, and I recognize it. And he said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. In fact, he uses right away this word chesed, this idea of loyal love, faithful love. He said, that's the way your love is, and that's what I need right now because I know I'm a sinner. I've done wrong things. He said, according to your great compassion, 
blot out my transgressions. And the word transgressions in there is this word pesha, has the idea of, of, of like rebellion, turning away from what God has from you. And he said, I, I, I'm telling you, God, I understand it. I blew it. I've made a huge mistake. It's been dishonoring in your life. It's been dishonoring to you, and and I know it's going to have implications for me and for other people. The discouragement that comes from seeing a person that you respect who's turned away or has sinned in such a way. So he says, "Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgression." And then verse two, he goes on. Wash away my iniquity. In other words, well, there's three major words that talk about this idea of removing the sin. Take away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Notice that washing comes out in a lot in this story. Of course, in that time, a lot of people had to go down to a well or they had to go down to the creek and get their clothes washed and hang them up. But the idea of the water washing away the sin is this thing that goes way back in the Old Testament. Wash away my iniquity. Lord, you know what I've done wrong. You know my sin. Cleanse me from my sin. Like, Lord, I know I blew it. I know I have sinned before you. And I'm asking you to take that away from me. If you don't, I'm lost. I'm done. And he said, cleanse me from my sin. And then he goes on to say this. I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. In other words, you don't have to tell me what I did wrong. I am very aware that the sin that I did was very significant. And I wear, I'm going to be aware that I'm going to have to deal with that for maybe the rest of my life. Many of us can think of times in our life or people that we know that there's something hugely significant, a great sin, that it might be something that somebody has to carry in the rest of their life. It's there. He said, oh, gosh, I know my transgressions. My sin's always before me. I'm, I'm reminded again and again of the fact that you've been so gracious to me in your mercy, and yet I turned away from it. And he says, you know what? That sin's always before me. It's nagging at me. Like, I've known people that have gone through some awful thing, some terrible thing that they did, who said, you know, I know that Christ forgave me, but almost every day I think about it. That's a hard thing to carry for the rest of your life. He says, I know my sin's always before me. And then he has this interesting phrase, against you, you talking to God, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you're proved right when you speak and justify when you judge. Now notice this, against you, you only. Any one of us could say, well, it's not just you, David, for example. What you did had huge implications for your family, for your people, for the following sons, grandsons, and great grandsons who are going to know, look back at David. He was the great king, the king, the king who would bring Messiah. And yet he says, David, you know, but he says, you know, against you, you only. In other words, ultimately, the greatest sin I did was not just about these people around me, but the sin that I'm very aware of. He said, so you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Now, verse 5, and we're not going to spend a lot of time in it because the theologians in the group could spend weeks doing this, and we're not going to do that, obviously. But verse 5 is a critical verse. It says right here, surely, this is speaking the scriptures, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That passage right there has caused all kinds of issues for people. And it's sad to think that happens that way, but it certainly does because it brings about this whole question of, 
Where does sin come? Where does it stop? And so notice he said, surely I was sinful at birth from the time my mother conceived me. So there's been kind of a theological struggle going on over years, time in the Middle Ages particularly. They thought that verse, they looked at that verse and talked about that being bad, about going sin. And they said, well, that's why we're supposed to have celibacy in the church. You're not supposed to have children, have babies, or things like that. They were opposed to getting married. Uh, it was, in other words, that's why, you know, of course, they, a lot of the hermits and a lot of the ones who tried to try to be celibate, that kind of deal. But the question is, it goes in here, that's the biggest issue, is the issue of what does it mean about sin? This is a term we've talked about before, particularly when we were doing Romans, where it talks about inherited sin. It talks about the fact that inherited sin, when we talk about that, as fact, it's not talking about the beginning of sin, but it's talking about the fact when we talk about sin, it's talking about because of what one person did brought sin to the world. And another person's effort and did what they did brought salvation to the world. And of course, we're talking here, Paul made it very clear about this. Through Adam's one sin, that brought sin and destruction upon the world for every single person. Now, a lot of people think, well, that's not fair. Only one person, Adam, did that thing, so why are we paying for it? Well, that's a good question. But his point is, sin is kind of like a, some, something like what, that comes through. It kind of works its way through us. And that's what he's saying. Notice when he talks about in this passage. Romans 5, as you remember, is one of these great passages that deals with it. Then, he said, then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. He's saying, one man brought sin to all the world. That's Adam. One man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, brought salvation to the world. And so he's making that point there. One man's trespass, pff, that brought the death to everybody. But one man's righteousness, Jesus Christ, is death on the cross. It brings life for all who come to faith in him. So this passage is important. It says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And there's a phrase you've heard me say before. Sins are because sin is. Sin is a reality. Sin is what is in all of us. It's in our DNA, if you want to use that phrase. An example is, remember, we went through this thing with the Ebola. You want to talk a little about it, you know, our man over there? No? He doesn't want to ever have to remember that word Ebola again, okay? But it's like that. It's killing this person, and that's killing this person, and it's going on. That's the way sin works. And what he's saying, you know, surely it's a sinful at birth, and from the time of my mother conceived me. And he's saying sin is like that. It's like a disease that comes and comes through and infects every single person. But the one he does, he comes on in the next verse, verse six is important. He now starts taking a little direction. Surely you desire truth in the innermost parts. What does he mean by that? I think it was about three or four weeks ago, remember we were talking about that in the ancient world, a lot of these people thought that the parts of your body had like you know, things that were good about them or things that they did. We say, I love you with all my heart. They could say, I love you with all my kidneys. You know, I love you with all, you know, you go anywhere you want to go on that one. Probably what he's doing is something like that. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. Like every part of me, I want every part of me to be cleansed, to be clear again. 
You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Those I want you to know that I want to be heard. And what he does now is he takes another tack. He's kind of going this way. Now he takes a little direction this way. And he comes in in this beautiful verse in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Hyssop is like a little plant, mostly in southern part of, um, in Europe. Particularly, it's found like in these old you know, buildings and stuff. The kind of, kind of plant that kind of gets itself between the cracks. Hyssop became a very important thing in the life of the people in the Old Testament. For example, it was used, for example, when um, time when Moses was crossing over. They had to have the hyssop that was there. With the um, times when they had a heifer, a red heifer, they had to have hyssop. The hyssop was some way kind of thinking to them. In some way, it brought about freedom or taking away of the sin. So he says, cleanse me with hyssop. I'll be clean. Wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. He's quoting from there, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. Whiter than snow, I'll make you. And he uses it. Only it doesn't occur that often in that phrase. But he says this beautiful thing. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've crushed rejoice. Now, I doubt that God ever crushed any of his bones. We're talking metaphorically. But his point is, let me hear joy and gladness. Notice, I've heard my sin. I know what I did wrong. And I know that I've been wrong in what I did. But he said, let me hear joy and gladness. And, you know, my, I feel like my bones have been crushed by my sin. I need, I need healing. I need restoration. I need forgiveness. And so he goes on to say, hide your face from my, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Let me be right with you against God, again, God, to be the person you want me to be. And then he says, okay, here's what I need. I really want to need, God. And many of you know this verse. It's a beautiful verse. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I love that verse. Create in me a pure heart. Give me a heart, Lord, that's like yours, a heart of love for people, love for Christ, love for the people that maybe don't know Christ, who need to know him. Create in me a new heart, O oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit. Help me, enable me by your Holy Spirit to be able to be the woman, the man, the child that you want me to be. And he says, that's what I need. And he says, don't cast me from your presence or take away your Holy Spirit from me. By the way, what's interesting there, when he talks about don't take your Holy Spirit from me, in the Old Testament, that phrase only comes two times in the Old Testament. Don't cast me from your presence or take me your Holy Spirit from me. What's interesting in that little verse is this. When he says that, it's interesting. I've told people a lot of times, this is the prayer that you never need to pray. In other words, you don't ever have to pray, don't cast me out from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. That's one of the great things. We praise God for the new covenant. What happens when we have in the scriptures? It tells us very clear. It says, to pray that you've never need to pray. Why? When it says, don't cast me from your presence, like, you know what? If you're a Christian, if you've come to faith in Christ, and you know that you're a believer, he said, you know what? What does Paul like to keep talking about? You are in Christ. You are connected with Christ. It's like you're connected with each other. Kind of like you've got chains together. You're in it. Paul keeps wanting to make that point. You are in Christ. Nothing, Paul says in Romans 8, can separate you from the love of Christ. 
Take away your whole spirit. You can't do that. The whole, when God says, I give you a believer, he said, you now have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. That cannot be taken away from you. And I have, over years, had people say, well, I just think I just lost it. You know, I just did a terrible thing, and I did this. Say, really? But do you believe that there's forgiveness in the gospel? If you don't, you're in deep trouble because the gospel's all about restoration and healing. It's the prayer you never need. You never say, don't cast me away. You don't have to. You're already connected with Christ. Don't say, oh, I lost the Holy Spirit. No, you didn't. You can't lose it. You're one of his children. And it's one of those great verses that tells you, here you are known. You are loved. You're cared for by God. And so it's a great verse. And so he says again, restore to me the joy of your salvation. In other words, I went through this hard time. I did what I did was wrong. I've confessed my sin. But he said, now would you restore the joy of your salvation? I want to remember what it was like when I first became a Christian. And, and I was so excited about being a believer and, you know, over time. And now with this sin I just did, it's just like, mm, there's not much there anymore. And he's saying, would you please restore to me the joy of your salvation? What it was like when I was excited about what Christ was doing for me? Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And so he said, then you know what I'll do? Now that I'm coming back to the Lord, now I recognize my sins have been forgiven. I have a relationship with God. I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. I want other people to know the fact what God has done for me. Yeah, I blew it. What I did was wrong. I recognize that. I've owned it. And he said, now I have come by, by God's grace. He's now enabled me to help others. I will teach transgression your ways, Lord, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. The tongue is like for like all of that, all of us. And he says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your, will pre- will declare your praise. We were, a while back, we were looking at Keith Green. Uh, you know, many of you know his mu- music and the things that he's done. We were looking at one of them. Many of you remember the one that he does, Jairus' Daughter. Remember, it's a really powerful story that he tells in that one. And it's interesting. You know, he says, you don't tell, Jesus, don't tell anybody. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, I got to tell somebody. I got to tell somebody. I got to tell somebody. In other words, his point is, it's like, For what God has done for me, how could I be silent? When God has given me freedom, when God has given me now a a a relationship with him, i got to tell somebody about it. And he says, oh, Lord, open my lips with my mouth and I can declare your praise. Now, what's odd, all of a sudden in this verse, he makes a statement that at first makes us think, really? He says, you don't delight in sacrifice. Stop right there. What do you mean? The whole Old Testament is about sacrifice. You're bringing a sacrifice to this, and you're cutting an, you know, one for here, and you're cutting an ox over here, and you've got a turtle dove over here. It's all about sacrifice. Read, read you know, if you want to, Genesis, Exodus, read Leviticus again. You'll learn more than you ever want to know about the, it's the system. And he's saying, you know what, Lord? I know that you don't delight in sacrifice. Now, there'd be many people who would go, did he say that? It is the system, right? And what's happening here is the psalmist is saying, you know what? We've been killing all these animals, and we've been doing all these things, and all these things we're told to do. But he said, you know what? 
if we're doing this and it's not out of love for God and love for others, it's wasted. He said, you know what? You don't delight in sacrifice. Or if I would, I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering. A good rabbi would go, what did he just say? But what he's saying here in the Old Testament, and we see this about five other times in the Old Testament, where God says, well, speak, Lord speaks to the, the, the leader, saying, you know what? you got all these animals you're killing for all the system. And you know what? Many of you, it has no meaning to you. It, has nothing, it means nothing to you. And because of that, he said, stop bringing the animals. Jeremiah talks about it. Hosea particularly talks about it. What's the point? What is the point of killing all these animals and putting all the stuff going up in the sky when your heart is not where it needs to be to be able to serve the Lord? You don't take pleasure in that kind of burnt offering. But he says, but the sacrifices of God, and I love this phrase, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you won't despise. Well, but we're going to bring an ox. It's going to be a big ox. We're going to have a great big thing here, big cerebral. We're going to let everybody know how, how much money we have because we have enough money even to kill an ox. And people think, darn, we're pretty good, aren't we? And he's saying, you know, God's not impressed by that. He wants to know, where's your heart? He said, the sacrifices that God's looking for is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you're not going to despise. It's a good way of saying, I will connect, you know, accept. And it's interesting in this passage. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, will you not despise? When you think about this, what about you. What about me? When God looks at us, we say, yeah, I'm doing good. I, you know, help with the church, and I do this, and I do that. And he's saying, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. But where's your heart? Where is God working in your life? Is it just you don't going through the things? Yeah, you got to do that. You do this, A, B, C, and D, move on. Go on to the next thing. He's just saying, but Lord, you know what? I want to be a woman, a man, his heart is broken before a broken world. A person who says, Lord, if you have to break me to use me, I'm okay with that because I want what you want me to be. A person who comes not just with an animal for a sacrifice, but brings ourself. What about you? What about me? Lord, help us, would you? It's so easy for us, Lord, to go through the motions, to do all the right things, be the right kind of people, and yet our heart is hardened. That, Lord, we sometimes go through the motions but has no real reality in our life. We pray, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would ignite in us a desire to know you, to serve you, to be a life of humility before one another and above all before you. Be with us, Lord. Help us and encourage us, we pray. For we ask this in Jesus' name.